The reading this morning is in two parts from the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 14 to 25, which you can find on page 834, and from the New Testament, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, which can be found on page 1064. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 14 to 25. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people of Jerusalem have said of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles of Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. John chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Graham. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. For those who are new amongst us, a very warm welcome. My name is Bruce, as you just heard. And uh, it's good to be here almost at Christmas. I'm going to start 
uh, by praying and then we'll have a look at what we just read now. Father, we do thank you we can be here today and I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds, particularly as we think about you dwelling with us in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this morning's message, I want to start with a question. Where is God? It's a question that I'm often asked as a minister for a range of reasons. Where is God? I sometimes speak to people who are doubters. Uh, They've heard the Christian faith explained. Uh, They'd like to believe, but still there's doubts in their minds. I can't see him. Where is he? I I, want to know this is real if I am to commit my life to what you're talking about. But there's also the cynic. And I've met numerous cynics in my time, far too many really. And you'll engage with them about the Christian faith. Yet you soon realise they're really not interested in wanting to know if there is a God. And the response when hearing about the Christian faith, often there's a reply, well, where is God? Show me God. I can't see him. If you show me God, then I believe. But not all people ask the question of where is God from a doubting or cynical point of view. Sometimes it's from a deep pastoral need. And I've sat with many people who are believers, but yet the current station of life that they're at is one where it's very difficult, there's suffering, there's hardship, there could be opposition, and they're asking the question out of that deep need, where are you God? I'm sick, I'm in trouble, I'm alone, where are you? And so the question of where is God is not one that's just for the doubters of the world. It's a question I think most of us will go through at some point in time. Even very committed Christians will at some point ask us, we know there's a God, but where is he now in my experience? You say that he dwells with us. Well, where is that? If you're new here today, we're in the middle of our Advent series and the word Advent is from a Latin word that means coming. And historically, for the four weeks prior to Christmas, churches have celebrated the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of God into this world. That's what Advent means. And for this Advent season, what we've been doing is thinking about that question of God coming amongst us. What does it mean that he dwells amongst us? And for the first couple of weeks, we've been in the Old Testament and we've seen firstly that he dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. And they walked with God in this beautiful fellowship. Sadly, because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, they were thrown out. And when the people of God reformed, that's Israel, God dwelt in their midst through the temple and the tabernacle. What we're going to look at this morning is a prophecy that spoke of the reality that God would dwell in a very different way in a coming age. He would dwell in our hearts by his spirit. And I want us just to stop and think about this question as we think about the heart. Formerly, God dwelt in the garden, then the temple. The promise that we read in Ezekiel is he would dwell in our hearts. And I think when we hear the word heart and God dwelling in our hearts, um, 
for a lot of us, we'll think of the heart, we'll think of emotion. And if I can give you a couple of illustrations, um, here's a man um, who's often referred to as having no heart. Now, what do we mean by that? Now, whether that's right or wrong, I'm not here to critique Peter Dutton, but what they're reflecting on is his position on particularly refugees in offshore detentioning. And they would say he has no heart. There is no sense of compassion. And you think particularly of the awful conditions they've been in, the limbo for years where they're in a sense a non-citizen, awaiting some sense of certainty. You think of the children, the sickness, the mental health issues. Well, people have said he has no compassion, no heart. And personally, I think some of the treatment of the refugees has been absolutely heartless. And absolutely, we need to have the children come home to Australia for decent treatment. But there's another way we think of the heart. We think of it in terms of romance and love. And I googled what is the uh, number one heart song and uh, what have been the top songs about heart and romance. And I won't sing you Kiki D and Elton John, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. I was tempted. That was number four. It is a favourite. It was 1976. It was when I was at high school. But the number one song was actually this song. Um, I didn't know the singer, uh, but I do know the song. Tony Braxton singing Unbreak My Heart. And it's the story of this woman who's had her heart broken by a bloke who's basically dumped her. And the song is about unbreak it. In other words, come back. My emotions are just destroyed. Can you come back so that I can feel love again? And I think when we think of the heart, we think of that sense of compassion, care. Uh, we think of emotion, romance. But I, I raise this because when you come to the Bible, the heart is a far bigger ca- uh, concept and category. And I want to put up a proverb which gives you a picture of this. It says... In Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Or another version has, it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart, above all else, for everything you do flows from it. In other words, the heart is not just where the emotions emanate from. The heart actually is the control center for a human's life, for our lives. Everything we do actually flows from our heart. Let me uh, illustrate this by giving you some words from Tim Keller, who's a famous pastor in New York City. He said this, According to the Bible, the heart is not just the seat of the emotions, i.e. compassion, care, romance, but also the source of our fundamental commitments, hopes and trust. And from the heart flow our thinking, feelings and actions. What the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire and the will carries out. Have you ever heard someone say something and you've thought, how can you think that? That just seems illogical. Well, it's because their heart has been set upon it. For whatever reason, they trust in this truth, uh, they love it, and their mind is justified by their heart. And so it may be illogical, but according to their heart, it's right. And you see, that is the strength of our hearts. They actually guide us. Uh, We'd like to think we're rational beings. We are rational beings to an extent. But underneath that, there's this very strong driver of our hearts 
our desires about what we love, what we trust in, and that will manipulate, it'll control our desires, our thoughts, our wills, our choices. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we think about God dwelling in our hearts. Uh, The reading we had today was from Ezekiel 11 and John chapter 3. Now, Ezekiel's probably a prophet not many of us are familiar with. It's a very long book, about 40 chapters in the Old Testament. And if I can set the context for you, Israel, who went into the land of Israel, were kicked out as a judgment by God. And the Babylonians and the Assyrians came and they captured the city. The Assyrians came first in the north, the Babylonians in the south. They captured Jerusalem and they took many of the people of Israel off to Babylon, the best and the brightest of the young people they took to inculcate in the Babylonian way. Famous amongst them are Daniel and his three friends, Meshach, Abednego, uh, etc., etc. And Ezekiel speaks a word to Israel and to Jerusalem, but in particular he speaks a word to those who were in exile in Babylon, those like Daniel. And in this section, I'm going to read from verse 17, he says, Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. And so there is this promise that God is going to reform his people from where they've been scattered. And then he says the following, they'll return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I'll give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them and I'll remove from them the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I'll be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to the vile images and detestable idols, I'll bring down on their own heads what they've done, declares the sovereign Lord. In other words, when this great day of rescue arrives, God is going to come and dwell with them in a brand new way. And if I can take us back to those first two ways of the temple and the garden, um, when Israel experienced God dwelling amongst them, it was externally. They saw him come down literally upon the temple. The the glory covered it. Uh, They would see the priests sacrificing. And there was a real sense of which there was externalities to their experience of God. And God says here to Ezekiel, actually, there's going to be a different experience of me dwelling with you. It will be by my spirit and it will be in your hearts. It will be internal. And I just want to reflect briefly on those three realities of the heart. And I've got three things. Our problem with God is hard hearts. The solution of God is a heart transplant. And the experience of God with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a heart experience. It's from the heart. But firstly, our problem with God is hard hearts. Verse 19 shows us that there are three major issues with our hearts when it comes to God. Now, he's describing Israel here and their experience of living under God. But my own experience of my own heart is this is exactly the same. My experience of dealing with people's hearts in terms of pastoral ministry is this is exactly the same. Uh, The condition is universal to humanity. And it's interesting, he says there, uh, and you can see that in the verse, I will give them an undivided heart. In other words, what you actually had was a divided heart. Uh, You had a heart that said, yes, I want some of God, but yes, I want some of the world. And that's what Israel did. And let me say, it's what we do. I'll have a bit of religion, but I don't want to go overboard because I've got my other life that I want to be in control of. 
And it's what the Bible says is a divided heart. Secondly, it says they had hearts of stone. In other words, when it comes to responding to God, there was a coldness, there was a hardness. It's what I described with the cynic. They really don't want to know if there's a God. And they'll dismiss the notion by just raising red herring questions, not really wanting to know the answer. And let me say, all of us at some point will struggle with this, a hardness of heart to God. And the reason is because we don't want God to be in control. We want to control our own life. The thought of God being in control is scary. And to quote the great New York singer Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way, thank you. He also says here that they had hearts devoted to idols. And the word devoted, I looked it up, it means to go after something. It's fascinating. It's it's to travel. Uh, You pursue. And it's used here of a heart that's idolatrous. In other words, they went after the things of the world, the idols of the world. And they actually became devoted to them. Now, I don't think we're any different Um, We go after the things of this world. We become devoted to the things of this world. We trust in them that that will provide us security and meaning in life, be it finances, be it experiences, be it comfort, whatever it is. And this is the reality that we struggle with, hearts that are hard, that are divided, and that actually pursue the world and not the things of God. For those who ask the question cynically, where are you, God? I can't see you. My response is this. You'll actually never see him unless you open your heart up. And one of the things about knowing is that you actually can't know anything unless you're open to knowing it. If you've got a closed mind to something, you will never know. And it's the same spiritually with God. If our hearts are cold devoted to other things, in other words, not open, we can't know God, we will not experience God, we will not have God dwell in our life. And Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. Famous words. And what he's reflecting on here is that he's saying to us, there's a heart condition that we've got to have before him, a, a stance, an openness to say, I need you, I want you, I seek you, I'm knocking. And so do you want to know and experience God dwelling with you? It's a very good question to ask because I think for many of us we go, actually, no, I don't. Well, let me say, if that is you, well, don't be surprised that you won't find God until it's too late. And that is Judgment Day. The problem of experiencing God and asking where God was in the Old Testament was this. They experienced God, but not in their hearts. And I want you to imagine that you were there with the people of God, Israel, in Egypt when they crossed the Red Sea. Because sometimes people say, look, I'd love to have experienced the things that the people of the Bible experienced. And let me say, it wouldn't have been exciting, it would have been terrifying to have walked through the Red Sea because you had a bloodthirsty army chasing you, wanting your heads, ready to literally destroy you. When Moses raised the stake... The sea's open, you walk through, the sea's closed over Pharaoh's army. Now, why do I mention that miracle? It's one of the great miracles of all of the Bible. What is amazing is, even though the people of God knew this, within a generation, though they knew it intellectually, 
their hearts began to stray. And you see, this is the thing, our hearts control us. And if our hearts are not soft and open, we will never know God dwelling with us. Now the solution that God grants us is this, it's what you could call a heart transplant. Have a look at verse 19 in Ezekiel 11. The promise of God is, he says, I'll give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Now, I'll just tell you something funny. I I love the eight o'clockers. They're the service that's just been. And we've got a lovely group of typically older people and they're very gentle. And I told them this story. It's about a friend of ours, dear friend from our past church. And their son had a congenital heart disorder from birth. And they knew that their son would die unless he had a heart transplant or was miraculously healed by God. And they prayed and prayed for many years. And there was no answer and David's life just slowly deteriorated because of the heart condition. And probably in his mid-twenties or 30, he would have died. And I never forget the news one morning I was listening and I heard of a very tragic event of a bike riding accident where a young man was killed. We were phoned not long afterwards and notified by Liz and John, the parents, to pray because that man's life that died was the heart that was going to be transferred into David's heart. I told this story at 8 o'clock and lovely Peggy said, it's not a genital uh, disorder, it's a congenital So just for the podcast, it's a congenital disorder, (laughs) not a genital one. (laughs) Said so gently. (laughs) But it was a heart transplant. And that heart saved his life. What Ezekiel is describing here is that God would need to do heart surgery on Israel. And it says there, I'll give them an undivided heart. I'll put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And you see, this is the the wonderful news of the gospel. It's why I had as the second reading, the famous discussion, description of being born again by the Lord Jesus as he engages with Nicodemus. Because Ezekiel is prophesying what Jesus spoke about. That there would be a new birth, a new heart, one that's not cold and stony but warm and alive to God. And you see, this is how God dwells with us now. He, by his Spirit poured out by the resurrected Lord Jesus, enters our hearts so that we trust him, his death for our sins, the Lord Jesus, and we follow him as our Lord and Saviour. And if you want to ask the question, where is God? One of the greatest witnesses to the truth of the reality of God being here in this world. We don't have a temple where you can see his glory. We can't go back to the garden and walk with Adam and Eve. But what you can see is the way he dwells in people's hearts and gives them a heart transplant so that they are new people in Christ and have their lives transformed. Let me give you one example from history. 
It's the story of the great Augustine, often called Saint Augustine. Who's heard of Augustine? A few people. Uh, if you haven't read about him, he is one of the great thinkers of the last 2,000 years, one of the greatest thinkers of the Christian church. His story is, he was born in 354 in Africa, he's from Hippo, and he was born to both a pagan father and a Christian mother. His mother obviously taught him about the things of God, but his father taught his son to concern himself with worldly pleasures and encourage that. And a lesson that young Augustine learned a bit too well. When he was 16, he stole fruit from a neighbor's garden. He writes about this in his book, which is called Confessions. And it says, The teen did not steal because he wanted the fruit, though he stole because he wanted to feel the thrill of doing something forbidden. It's fascinating. He just wanted to be naughty. Now, I can empathize. I, I, my mother is a saint for what she had to put up with me, and I can totally empathize with this. And he wrote about it later, and he said, It was foul, and I loved it. Now, as a growing up young man, he was surrounded by a group of other young men that were incredibly sexually promiscuous, amongst other things. Their lifestyle was characterized by loose living, but also he had in the midst of that a search for answers to life, basic questions. In other words, uh, the more he indulged, the more there was a sense of which there must be more to life. And he famously wrote this prayer as he got nearer to the Christian faith, but not yet converted. It prayed like this, grant me chastity and continence, but just not yet. <laughs> I'm sure many would empathize with that. When he was about 32, Augustine heard the voice of a child singing a song, the words of which were this, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. He thought at first that the song was related to some kind of children's game, but then he thought, I can't remember having heard that song sung before. Realizing that the song might be a command from God and that what it was actually referring to was picking up the Bible, he located a Bible and picked it up and he opened it and he read the first passage he saw. He literally got the, the book uh, that they had back then, probably slightly different form to this, and it fell open at Romans 13, verse 13 to 14. And these are the words he read. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, which had absolutely characterized his life, not in quarreling and jealousy, rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Reading this scripture, Augustine felt as if his heart was flooded with light. He gave his life to the Lord Jesus and he became this incredibly transformed person and incredibly generous to the poor. Later on, reflecting on his experience of God flooding his heart with light and finding Christ, Augustine wrote this famous prayer. You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. And you see, this is the experience of the gospel and of how God dwells in our hearts now that Christ has arrived. It is the reality of being born again, as Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. His word comes like light. It comes like heat into a dark and cold heart. And it warms it. And it makes it alive to God. And we experience his presence and his love and forgiveness and joy in our hearts as we open our hearts to him. 
Today, Augustine's recognized as one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the Christian church. And what caused this radical transformation from someone who was profligate, a thief, immoral, to one of the great saints of the Christian church? Well, he heard the word of God and God spoke to his heart and transformed him. And you see, this is the experience of God. It's a heart experience. It's an experience of hearing God speak through the scriptures to us hearing the gospel declared to us where we know that God is for us in Christ. We know that in spite of who we are and the coldness and the divided heart, the pursuit of the things of this world, that God loves us and has sent his son to die for us and forgive us. And you see, we'll experience God in all sorts of different ways. We can look out on a beautiful sunrise and sense the glory of God in creation. We can pray and we can see answers to those prayers and we know God is listening and running this world. We can see other people's lives transformed as we've just heard about in Augustine and be encouraged. But underneath it all, there's this experience of hearing God speak to us through the gospel. Where we know that there is a Father who loves us in heaven and whose Son died for us. And that this God is for us in the gospel. And his spirit works in our hearts powerfully to confirm that with our spirits, that we are his. We are loved. And as a result, as a response, we love Jesus. We adore him. We worship him and we love others because we have been loved. And you see, that is the great prayer that Paul prayed we saw in Ephesians just a few weeks ago in our Better Together series. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. We experience God in our hearts through the gospel and through the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. How do you know that your heart has been changed? Because Jesus has become beautiful to you. And let me just say, as someone who would think of themselves as a man's man, it's not how I normally talk about men, (laughs) that they're beautiful. But there is a beauty to the Lord Jesus, a strength married with a tenderness and a compassion, a wisdom and a softness along with a strength and conviction. And oh, the way he cared for people. And oh, the way he died for us. Ask yourself this question. Why is it that someone can profess Jesus is their Lord and yet you discover midweek they lie and rip people off? Why is it you can meet people in church who can profess Jesus is their Lord, yet during the week fill in dodgy tax returns? Why is it someone can profess Jesus is their Lord and sing with great joy, yet be incredibly stingy with finances and keep it all to themselves? Why is it someone can profess Jesus is their Lord and yet abuse their spouse? And I could go on and on about some of the profound inconsistencies that I, on occasion, see. I take it it's because the truth of the gospel is really just some rational thought in their head. 
and their heart has not been touched. And you see, you just take the issue of greed. A person becomes generous when they receive the incredibly generous, lavish love of Christ and, and the wonder of that forgiveness in their hearts. And they go, well, I want to give to others the way I've received. But it doesn't matter how much a person professes with their head and might agree to notionally, rationally, if their heart is not touched by that knowledge, well, that will make all the difference in what they decide to do with their money and the value they place on it and the value they place on other people and how they make ethical decisions. You see, because what our heart loves, our mind will justify and our decisions will follow. And the transformation of the gospel is he transforms us and dwells in us in the most personal and intimate of ways in our hearts so that we are changed from the inside out like Augustine was. And so let me finish with this word, guard your hearts. Because above all else, it is the wellspring of life. And friends, have open hearts to the work of the gospel and the spirit of God in your life so that you are tender-hearted, so that there is a, a single focus and devotion and you're going after Christ, not the things of this world. And friends, this morning, if you sense that your heart is cold or hard or divided or going after the things of this world, I want to invite you to pray and to come back and to open your heart to God this morning. It may be that you genuinely are asking the question, where is God? I encourage you, pray with an openness in your heart. God, if you're there, help me to find you. And if you'd like to do that this morning, I invite you to come down. We'd love to pray with you. But perhaps you're just feeling like your heart has gone cold. And actually how you're living does not reflect the profession of your faith. And I invite you also, please do come and be prayed for. But let me pray for us all as we finish. Father, we thank you that at Christmas we're reminded that you came to us. You came first in the garden, you came and dwelt in the temple, but with the coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and the coming of your Holy Spirit, you dwell in our hearts now. You transform us from the inside out. May we have hearts that are soft, that are open to you, that are undivided in our attention. And devoted to the things of God. May we know you with us. I pray for people who are suffering, going through hard times, that they may know you in their hearts. They may know the strengthening of your spirit, the comfort of the gospel. They may know you dwelling in their hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.